0: So this morning, we're continuing to go through the book of Acts. Been going through this for a couple months now, the story of the early church, and we're up to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Um, This section is focused on Paul, on his missionary journeys, as he brings the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection around the Roman Empire. And Acts 16, he's going to be in Philippi which, of course, if you know the Bible, you know there's a book called Philippians, which is a letter he wrote to the church in Philippi. This is the story of how the church in Philippi started. And in chapter 16, you see in particular how God brings various different people into the church family, many different kinds of people from different backgrounds to faith in Jesus. And so I'm going to just read through Acts 16 a little at a time, make some comments along the way, because there's a lot of little things I could touch on, and then I'll focus a little bit more on the bigger themes. But let's just begin in Acts 6. 6 through 12, uh, first and foremost. This clicker's a little... There we go. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days couple of just interesting things on this. You'll notice maybe that in the midst of this writing, it goes from third person to first person, plural. And so Luke is the one who writes the book of Acts, and apparently in this section is when he joined in Paul's missionary journey. And so he goes from talking about Paul and his companions to we went here and we went here. It's very interesting, and and it, it's kind of like a travel blog here, right, where he's kind of making sure he's very specific and letting people know where they went. And the other interesting thing, is you'll notice, is, is how how led they are by the Spirit of God, right? It seems like however God communicates, he's letting them know, like, this door's shut, and this door's open. Don't go here, go here. And so it's, just, it's, it's neat to see how he leads them by the Spirit of God. And Luke, making sure that it's very clear, this is historical record that he's recording here for you of where we went and why we went there. So let me just continue. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Typically, when Paul would enter a city on a missionary journey, what was the first thing he would look for? He'd look for a synagogue, usually. He'd look for a synagogue where he knew he could go and he could use that forum to talk about Jesus and how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. But in Philippi, there's no synagogue to go to. He needed 10 Jewish men in those days to form a synagogue, so apparently there were not not enough of Jewish presence there. So he looks for a place of prayer, and they go down, and they find these women having a prayer meeting, having a Bible study by the river, and he joins there. So one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized... She invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. (laughs) So Luke highlights one woman in particular, Lydia here. And what we know about her is that she's a businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur, it seems. A businesswoman with her own business selling purple cloths. You may know that purple in those days was very expensive. Uh, It was worn by royalty. That's why when they mocked Jesus, they put that purple, you know, cloak on him or purple robe to mock him because it was the color worn by majesty, by royalty. And so she's evidently doing very well for herself, probably a wealthy businesswoman. And she's a worshiper of God, which means she's a God-fearer, someone who had kind of left pagan roots and was studying the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul comes and he shares the gospel with Lydia and the women who are gathered here at this prayer meeting. And the Lord opens her heart to receive the gospel. And she persuades them, come and stay in my home. Make my home your center for ministry here in Philippi. It's good lessons here about, again, looking for opening for spiritual experience. You know, looking for openings. Where's their spiritual opening? That's what, when Paul comes, he's always looking for who is open spiritually. Let's go and share the gospel there. So moving on to verse 16. So that's the first person. There's three people we're going to see in this passage who come from very different backgrounds who the Lord brings to faith. The first is this wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. Verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Very different woman here, right? We we went from Lydia, this businesswoman, this wealthy businesswoman, to now we have this slave girl, probably, you know, 12-year-old slave girl, possessed by a demon that allows her to tell the future. And she makes a lot of money for her owners by her fortune-telling. Again, one aside comment is there is a spiritual realm out there, and not every spirit is good. You may have some people in your life who are very open spiritually, but they think that every spirit is a good spirit. Not every spirit is a good spirit. And we have this girl here who's being tormented, possessed by this evil spirit that gives her the ability to tell the future, and she's making a lot of money for her owners as a result but it's an evil spirit that is inside of her that Paul casts out. It makes me think of James 2:19 where he says, "You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder." He said, "Yeah, there is a spiritual reality. There are those out there who know that this is Jesus, the Son of God." Just like this slave woman is yelling out, "These men are servants of the most high God telling you the way to be saved." But she needs to be set free. She needs the power of God to set her free from what she's been enslaved by. But unfortunately, as Paul prays for her and casts out this demon, he faces all kinds of backlash as a result. And This is where they meet the third person. (coughs) Verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we've got this wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, and we've got this slave girl, and now we've got this jailer. And the jailer would have been a retired military man, and he's very cruel here, it seems, to Paul and Silas. He puts them in the inner cell away from any light, and he fastens their feet in the stocks, which is a way of pulling their legs apart in a very painful fashion. They've just been beaten, flogged. They're in a lot of pain, and now he's making it worse. He's not washing their wounds at all. He is just putting them in the stocks to make it even worse. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before him them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace." But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. Very different people. Acts 16, Luke seems to intentionally give us the stories of three different people in their conversions. This wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, this demon-possessed slave girl, and then this jailer, this ex-military man who's very cruel but is converted through the witness of Paul and Silas. He's very cruel to them, but it... Despite their cruelty, we see that Paul and Silas are singing hymns. They're worshiping God. All the other prisoners are fascinated, listening. And then when this miraculous earthquake happens, instead of leaving and letting the jailer kill himself, they stay and they say, don't harm yourself. We're still here. And the jailer, overcome, asks him, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus And you will be saved. And the jailer and his family are believed they're baptized. They invite Paul and Silas into their house. They wash their wounds. They feed them. They become believers. I want to share three things from this passage that I, I believe are important this morning. The first is that God brings many people to himself through many different means. He brings people to himself through many different means. Again, I think Luke is intentional in showing us three separate testimonies of how people come to faith here. It's not exhaustive. There's many different ways. But here's three in particular. You have Lydia at first. Lydia comes through hearing God's word. She's gathered together in a Bible study, in a prayer meeting. Paul shows up and opens the scriptures and shares the gospel with her. And she comes to faith. Some people, this is how they come to faith. They hear a sermon. They, hear, they, they sit in a Bible study. They hear the word of God. And the Lord opens their heart like he did for Lydia. And they come to faith in Jesus Think of John Wesley, known for founding the Methodist Church. On this day, May 24th, 1738, John Wesley opened his Bible about five in the morning and came across these words. These are given unto us, exceeding great and precious promises, even that ye should be partakers of the divine nature. And he read similar words in other places. That evening, if you could just move the slide for me. That evening... He reluctantly attended a meeting in Aldersgate. Someone read from Luther's preface to the epistle to Romans. About 8.45 p.m., while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's John Wesley's account of his salvation. It came while he was in a Bible study, just like Lydia. The Lord opened his heart. Some come through hearing the Word of God, some come to faith through the power of prayer and God's miraculous intervention. The slave girl, she wasn't going to be in a place where she was going to have a Bible study. That's not how she was going to come to faith. But through the power of prayer, through the casting out of that demon, she was set free and came to Jesus. Some people, that's how they come to faith through the power of prayer, through God's miraculous intervention. You think of people like Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, and how many have come to faith through recovery movements over the years, being set free from addiction, being delivered from oppression. Some people need that experience of the power of God, setting them free to come to faith in Jesus. And then some come to faith through the witness of other believers, especially in times of suffering. Think of the jailer. Yes, there was the miraculous earthquake. But truly, he came to faith through the witness of Paul and Silas. That even though he had been cruel to them, even though he deserved to be killed or left to die, Paul and Silas showed him mercy. They didn't walk out when the gates were open. And they stayed. And it was through their witness singing hymns while they're in the stocks, worshiping God while they're being tortured, and then staying and showing mercy to the jailer. It was through their witness, especially in the face of their suffering, that transformed his life and his heart. There's many examples I could point to. One recent book was a woman, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Maybe you've heard of her. She was a former English professor at Syracuse, and she, her specialty was in queer theory, and she was a committed lesbian relationship But it was through the love and care of a local pastor and his wife that she turned to Christ. And she wrote this book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, about her turning to faith in Christ through the witness of believers in her life. There's no one way that people come to faith in Christ. Some come through Bible study, through hearing the word, through sermons that are preached. Some come through the miraculous intervention of God, being set free and delivered. Some come through the witness of other believers, especially in times of suffering. And I want to just focus a little longer on that last one because that, that one's really challenging, I think, for most of us. That often it is when you go through times of suffering as a believer that God is giving you an opportunity to be a witness, to be different than people of the world. Again, Paul and Silas were not wailing and crying and saying, woe is me, while they were in those stocks. What were they doing? They were worshiping God. They were singing hymns, praising God. And then when they had the opportunity to exact vengeance on the jailer, instead they showed him mercy. And when you go through times of suffering, when you go through difficult times, you have an opportunity to witness in a way that you don't when things are just going great. You think of Matthew 5, 43 to 47, where Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? What's Jesus saying there? saying, if you just love people who are nice to you, who are kind to you, anybody does that. Anybody can do that. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Like Paul and Silas with that jailer, seeing this situation as an opportunity to display the love and mercy and grace of God. I mean, that's the way I'm sure their hearts were. Like, God, I know that you led us here. You clearly told us not to go here. You clearly led us to Philippi. And now we find ourselves in prison. And we're believing this is not an accident that we are here. We're believing that you have brought us here. And by your sovereign plan, you have put us here in this jail. So we're going to worship you. We're going to keep our eyes fixed on you. And we're going to look for opportunities to witness, to point people to you. And you can imagine all of a sudden, you know, the gates are open and they have an opportunity to escape and maybe Silas was about to or maybe the others were about to and then Paul says, wait. Just wait. Maybe God has given us this opportunity to show mercy to one who's been so cruel to us. I mean, this is supernatural, right? This is this is not natural. This is not the way our hearts operate. This is not the way we are. We naturally want vengeance. We naturally want those who have punished us to suffer. But Paul and Silas here see an opportunity to show mercy, to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them. In times of suffering, that is when your witness is the most powerful. To show mercy to those who have been cruel, to continue to worship God even when it's hard, that is when your witness Witness is the most powerful. Let's go back to Acts chapter 5, 40 to 41. This is when the apostles had been put in jail. It says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in. This is the Pharisees calling them in. And they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Again, that is supernatural. That is not natural to go out thanking God that they've been counted worthy of suffering for his name, of being able to walk in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered and died for them. And now they can follow in his footsteps, suffering for others, loving others even when they are mistreated. That's why James says in verses uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I'm challenging you this morning as you see this story of Paul and Silas. Imprisoned, tortured, but praising God in the midst of it. Worshiping him, keeping their eyes fixed on him. And then when they are given an opportunity to take vengeance on the one who's mistreated them, they choose instead to show mercy. I'm challenging you. Consider in your life where you are going through times of suffering, where you are being mistreated. Considering that maybe God has allowed that to happen in your life, not because he hates you, not because you've done something wrong, but because God is giving you an opportunity to be a witness to him in a way that you wouldn't be able to do just if everyone was kind to you and everything was going great. This is, this is where you find the strength, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. <laughs> Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Just meditate on that one for a few seconds. This is the writer of Hebrews trying to encourage the people who are listening, to persevere in suffering. And what does he tell them to do? He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? I've said this many times, that the joy set before him, it wasn't being returning to the Father. He already had the Father for all eternity. The joy set before him was having you with him. That was what allowed him to endure the cross. The joy set before him was having you restored to a right relationship. That is what allowed him to endure the cross, scorning its shame. And so he tells us, fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When you go through times of suffering, when you're going through times where you are being mistreated, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who suffered and died for you. He did it for the joy set before him. And I can imagine Paul and Silas as they're fixing their eyes on Jesus, worshiping him and praising him in the stocks. They're also saying, for the joy set before him, I want to see this jailer come to faith. And if we stay here instead of leaving, I believe God will give us an opportunity to share the gospel with him as his heart is melted by this mercy we show him. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Suffering and persecution gives you an opportunity to display God's love and grace and mercy in a way that you just can't when things are going great in your life. The second thing that I want to share from this passage is that to come to God, you must believe in Jesus. The jailer comes before them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they reply, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What do I have to do? What kind of money do I have to give? What kind of penance do I have to do? What, you know, what kind of good works do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? So you don't have to do anything. You have to believe. You have to look to Jesus, the one who died for you, who did everything that you couldn't do, the one who lived the perfect life you could not live, who died a sacrificial death on the cross in your place, who rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. Look to him and you'll be saved. Believe in him and you will be saved. You will have eternal life. I don't know if you've ever heard the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon, generally considered to be one of the greatest preachers of all time back in the 19th century. This is his story of his conversion. On January 6, 1850, 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was trudging up Hythe Hill and Colchester on his way to church. When the blizzard prevented him from going further, he turned the corner and made his way into a small primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And he wrote this, I sometimes think... I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. And the text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah forty-five twenty-two. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. A, he said in broad Essex, many of ye are looking yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. And he continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Amazing. Amazing that God would just use a tailor getting up in the pulpit to save Charles Spurgeon. And amazing that, again, it was not complicated. It was look to Jesus Believe in him and be saved. It's not do this long list to earn your salvation. It is look to Jesus to be saved. Romans chapter 4, 3 through 5. Paul says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked... His faith is credited as righteousness. Again, it's not about earning salvation. It's not about the works. Look to Jesus and be saved. Believe in Jesus, Paul and Silas told the jailer, and you will be saved. And again, what I read earlier, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. If you do not know Jesus, this is the answer. Look to him and be saved. On the cross, dying for your sins. Risen again from the dead to conquer sin and death. The last thing from this passage is this. Not only does God bring, himself, bring people to himself through many different means, and to come to God, you must believe in Jesus, but God brings those who are saved into the diverse family of God. You see how the chapter ends? After Paul and Silas came out of prison... They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. Brothers means brothers and sisters, obviously. It's Lydia's house there. So we have this chapter here where we have this businesswoman, this wealthy businesswoman coming to faith, this demon-possessed slave girl coming to faith, and then this ex-military jailer coming to faith. And it ends. the chapter ends, it seems, with the church, this infant church gathered together, looking around the room at each other like, huh, I don't think I ever would have spent time with you if it were not for Jesus. You know, sometimes you look around the room and you don't know everyone's story in here, but I know some of the stories. And if you get to know each other, you're going to find that we come from very different backgrounds. And God has used many different means to bring us all to this place, into this diverse family of God. That's the way it was back in Philippi, and that's the way it still is today. That by the grace of God, we have those who are wealthy, and God opens their heart through Bible study to come to faith. We have those who are poor and oppressed, delivered and set free and brought into the freedom of Jesus Christ. And those who are cruel, those who are opposed to the people of God, being shown mercy by the witness of other believers come into faith in Jesus, brought together into the diverse family of God. You know, in those days... There was a traditional prayer that Jewish men pr- prayed. They would pray this. Oh, I don't have it up there. They would say, blessed are thou king of the universe who has not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. How about that for a prayer? And that would be the Jewish men praying that, blessed are thou king of the universe who has not made me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. <clears throat> and now look at who God just brought into his family here in Acts 16, right? A slave, a Gentile, and a woman to overturn that awful prayer. This is is how Paul put it in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I can imagine as that church gathered together in Philippi, maybe Paul said this. Listen, in this place, in this family, in this church, we don't divide people, Jew, Greek, male female slave free your brothers and sisters you're one family of god it's a beautiful thing and it's one of those truths that needs to be repeated today because again if you look out in the culture and you're paying attention what's going on out in the culture is that people are trying to sort people and divide people right let's make sure we divide people into different ethnicities and different races and different genders and different everything else Let's divide people as if that is somehow going to bring justice and unity in this world. The gospel says otherwise. In the gospel, all those walls come down. In God's family, we don't divide people. We are one family of God. Colossians 3.11, Paul said, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. One of the major themes of Paul's writing is always unity in the church, and that's what we need to pray is just for God's unity to prevail, that we do not allow the things that the world says should divide people to divide people in the house of God. All those barriers come down as the slave girl looks at the jailer and the jailer looks at the wealthy businesswoman and the wealthy businesswoman looks at the slave girl. And Paul says, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You're one. That's the way it is. So let's pray For unity in our church. And let me pray for you. That God would strengthen you. In whatever suffering. Whatever persecution you are going through. To keep your eyes on Jesus. And to be a witness to others. Let's pray. Lord we do pray. As we see that vision of the early church in Philippi. That our church as well. And your church internationally Lord. Worldwide would be a church where we are united by our faith in Jesus in one diverse family of God. That all the things that divide people out in the world would come down in the family of God. That we would treat each other as brothers and sisters. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that when we find ourselves in times of suffering and persecution that we would trust you, that we would worship you, that we would look for opportunities to show mercy, to love our enemies, to have faith in you in a way that shows a watching world that you are God and that we love you and that we trust in you. Lord, I pray specifically for those who find themselves in difficult marriages, Lord, who are trying to persevere in loving when they feel mistreated, Lord, I pray, God, that you would strengthen them today. Help them to keep their eyes fixed on you, not on their circumstances, to trust you. Strengthen them to be able to love and show mercy, Lord, and lead their loved ones to Christ, we pray. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.